Well, I love that song. What a beautiful song. It's taken uh, directly from Revelation. I believe it's chapter 5 or 6, uh, but there's a picture of the throne room of God, and it talks about uh, this brilliant, majestic God who sits on his throne that's high above all things. And, and you know, I, I, I wonder how hard it must have been for John to describe God in all of his glory. Uh, and, and the Spirit gave him this picture that helps us to start to imagine. You know every picture is inadequate. When you start thinking about how big God is, everyone has to fall short of how enormous and how big and how awesome he is. But Revelation gives us this picture that gets us to thinking. Uh, another picture in Revelation that helps us to understand God is that the Bible says in Revelation there's going to be a marriage between God and his church. Uh, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You maybe have heard uh, that imagery where God's special people will be united forever with God forever. And that's the relationship God wants you to think about when you think about your relationship with him. That he loves you like a husband loves his, his bride. Uh, as a pastor, I've been part of a lot of weddings. Uh, uh, 25 years worth of weddings, and I have tons of memories. And, and, and I'll be honest, most are not the sweet awe moments that people think their wedding's going to turn into. The memories I have of weddings are the where everything went wrong weddings. <laughs> Those are the ones that stick out uh, in my, my mind. Uh, one wedding in particular I remember, the, the wedding was going to be this huge wedding at, the, at, at our church and then a reception at the convention center. They were inviting a thousand people, hoping big, big, big wedding, and they put the wrong name of the church on the invitations that went out to a thousand people. I remember that one. <laughs> I won't forget it. Uh, I also remember the one where one of my best friends in the church, her son, uh, was getting married, and uh, I'd counseled with them for four months, and the day of the wedding came, and I said, give me the marriage license so I can fill it out, and he said, you have to get a license to get married? <laughs> Whoops. Or uh, the time that I was doing a wedding, uh, you know, that I'd been kind of called in to pinch hit in a wedding, and I met with the couple, and I forgot the person's name, and I hadn't written it down. Yeah, that's not a good thing. You know, I said, I looked at the man, and I said, do you take, and I forgot the name, so I inserted Mary. Do you take Mary to be your wife? And the father of the bride said, who's Mary? <laughs> and I remember that one for sure. Um, I, or I also remember the time I forgot to show up to a wedding. True story. Uh, don't worry, I'm not doing any of yours, <laughs> so you'll be all right. Uh, worse than that was the time that the groom decided that being on time was optional, and he was about 20 minutes late to the wedding, and the bride was livid the entire service. Oh, she was fit to be tied. Uh, you know, I'll never forget some of the, the funny things that were said in weddings, it's hot in here, guys. It is. Just fan yourself. Do whatever you need to do. It's fine. Uh, or turn the air conditioner on or whatever. But anyhow, <laughs> no, it's all good. Yeah, open the door. It's fine. Um, the, uh, I'll, I'll never forget one time I was preaching and uh, uh, the, uh, 
the, 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 I, I was probably 25 at this time, and I was trying to dot every I and cross every T and articulate things so well, which is really complicated for me. But I was trying really hard to pull this off, and it was this prim and proper ceremony. Everything had gone off without a hitch. The guy said, you may kiss your bride. He lifted up the veil, and he backed up, and he was as redneck as they come. He said, honey, you look better than a brand new set of snow tires. <laughs> I'll never forget that day. She didn't think that was that great. But anyhow, uh, but, uh, you know, I remember people, about five years ago, people started dancing out, you know, whenever they go down the aisle. I remember people dancing out the aisle. I remember some people trying to dance out the aisle, you know. Uh, but my favorite memory of every wedding that I do, it's not a single wedding, it's a moment in all weddings. It's when these guys who I have privileged information. I'm back there with them before we walk out onto the stage. These guys who are back there telling jokes, they're picking on the groom, they're giving him, I've heard all the ball and chain, all those type things coming at him, and he's sitting there, you know, and he's kind of laughing, and he's trying to pretend like he's not sick. But all of them, I can guarantee you, they would say, I want to be anywhere but here, dressed in this monkey suit, having to stand at attention. I don't want to do that. I love the moment, though, where they all come out and they all stand there, tough guys who don't want to be there. The wedding party wakes their way in and then the music changes. And everybody stands up and they turn toward the bride. And everybody is smiling and grinning, except for the father of the bride, of course. But everybody is looking back at this except for me. Because in that moment, I always do the same thing. I always turn to the groom and watch this tough guy who doesn't want to be there melt. And he just, he sees his bride for the first time. And you can just see this, this, this excitement that they are about to become husband and wife. The Bible says that's how God feels about us. God loves us like a husband loves a bride. That's the way this love is described. Are we going to go this morning? Is it working? There we go. The Bible describes this. It's, it went out with the air conditioner went out. <laughs> the Bible describes this love uh, in, the, in the same way. And, and this is what God wants your experience with him to be like. God, l- let me let you in on a little secret. And this is just like you and Uncle Nick talking, okay? We won't tell anybody about this. God's crazy about you. And he doesn't really care that much if you get all the rules right, if you love him perfectly. That's what God's really, he wants you to love him. You see, the the great commandment is not keep the rule, keep the rule, keep the rule, keep the rule. The great commandment is love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's what God's really looking for. And he wants you to love him the way that man melts when he sees his bride. He wants you to love him like one who would make a commitment and say, till death do us part. He wants you to love him with everything you have. He wants this love relationship, and that's what it's always been about. This is not a Jesus New Testament thing. This is an Adam and Eve all the way through the Old Testament, all the way until the end of time thing. God wants you to have a love relationship with him. In Jeremiah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and God speaks through the prophet. And he says in verse 2, he says, I, I, I remember the loyalty of your youth. I remember that you loved me 
like a bride loves her husband. I remember when we were just in love. I led you out into the wilderness, and, and you followed me. I didn't even tell you where we were going. You just said, I trust you. I'll follow you, and you followed me there. And God says Israel was holy to the Lord. The, they were the first fruits of the harvest. All who ate of it found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. Uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you looked at my first fruits, man, I'd get you. You talk bad about my wife, I'm punching you in the nose, God says. I love my bride. And everybody who talked that way of her disaster would come on them. And then in verse 5, it changes. Listen to what he says in verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me? Why, why'd you follow worthless idols? Why, why did you become worthless? Listen, I thought we had a good thing going here. I loved you. You loved me. We were making this thing work. And you just chased after empty stuff. Then in verse 11, listen to what he says. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods, even though they were not really gods? And yet my people, he says have exchanged uh, their glory, this, this good, great relationship for useless idols. Be horrified at this, heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly appalled. This is what the Lord thinks of what's going on. For my people, he says in verse 13, have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that can't hold water. God said, why would you trade me? I'm like this spring of life, and I bring joy to your life, and I can make things good. And you know when it's just me and you, and we're right, and you wake up, and you have peace, and, and you ask for forgiveness, and you get it, and you feel clean, you have this relationship with me, I've got this good thing going on with you, and now you, I don't get it. Why do you chase after this stuff? Instead of God's spring, you said, let's dig our own wells, and you thought it would be a better supply. And then he says, you should be appalled at this. Be appalled, heavens. Be horrified, heavens. This is not the way God has designed our relationship. And how could they do it? Again, back in verse 11, listen to what he says. My people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. They've turned their backs on me. And they followed things that don't hold up. We might say, man, if God loved me the way a husband loves a bride, I'd never lead him yet. But yet we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We trade the good that God intends for us for something less valuable. We get tempted by something that we believe will bring us more pleasure or we believe will make us happier, or we believe will be easier, and we follow after that something. And it doesn't hold water. It complicates our life. It leads to harsher consequences and even more despair. And God says to us, what have I done wrong? Why would you leave me for that? And then listen to how he ends this section from Jeremiah 2 to Jeremiah 3, verse 19. I thought, God says, how I long to make you my sons. I want to give you a good land. I want to give you the most beautiful inheritance of all the nations. But then listen to what he says. I, I, I wanted you to call me father, and I wanted that you would never turn away from me. But then he says, however, 
as a woman may betray her lover, so you have betrayed me, O house of Israel. For the rest of the day, I want to turn to James 1. Pick up where we left off last week. Because in this section, James is completely dealing with that. Where we trade in God's good for that which is of less value. And he's dealing completely with temptation. And typically when you hear a message about temptation, it goes like this. Are you you ready? You might want to write this down. Don't, 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 don't. That's sermon over. That's usually how a message on temptation goes. And I'm going to be honest with you, James is going to get to a point later on in the book of James where he says, don't. But right now what he's going to do is something completely different. He's not talking about simply don't do what's wrong. He's going to say, wait, you're failing to choose that which is good. God loves you. It's not about what you shouldn't be doing. It's about the one you should be loving. Now, as I read this section, I hear God's words echoing in the background. And you choose me over this? Last week, the context of James, the people had been scattered. And apparently, they were starting to feel the pressure of persecution in Jerusalem. So they get pushed into the uttermost parts of the earth. And and in these places, they're starting to abandon their faith. And they're starting to adopt some practices of those who, who, who don't love God. And James is calling them out on it. And, and, and listen, I, I'm not saying that they were bad people because they're really no different than us. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I don't believe the Bible is filled with heroes that are so much above me. I believe the Bible is filled with people who are just like me. Flawed, broken, messed up, tempted human beings. And they did exactly what we do when we give in to temptation. What do we do when we give in to temptation? We blame other people. Listen to what they were doing in James chapter 1, verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. And that's where some people want to fix blame, isn't it? We want to blame God. God's the reason that I do what I do. He made me this way. I can't help it. Listen to what he says again. No one who is undergoing this temptation, this trial, should say, I'm being tempted by God. Don't go there. This is not God's fault. God doesn't tempt anyone by evil. He's not tempted. So this is not a working of God. No one has the right to say to God, to God, this is your fault, because he has nothing to do with evil. Now, our blame might not turn to God, but we sometimes blame others. When my kids were little, uh, my oldest daughter sometimes would say this, she made me kick her. <laughs> what? She did. She made me kick her. No, no, honey. She, it, it, you know, it was his fault that I yelled at him. It was my friends who caused me to take that substance. Listen, that's as old as creation of mankind. People have been blaming others. Some people will even want to blame their environment, right? If you lived in a place like I lived, or if you lived with the person I lived with, you would do the same type things. James makes it clear when you are tempted... It's an inside job. It comes from within. Your temptation and your weakness comes from your own personal longings. 
We can't say, she seduced me, God made me this way, I've been going through a hard time, I'm just prone to addiction, it's in my genes, my small group hasn't called me in a week. We can't say anything like that as if it's somebody else's fault that we want to do wrong. Whenever you're tempted, it's your fault. Because the Bible says, each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own desires. Notice he uses a word in this passage, draw, these two words, drawn away and enticed. These are a hunting and a fishing term. One is to put like a bait in a trap. The other is to put like a bait on a hook. You know, one is enticing one in, one is enticing one to take hold of. And that's what it looks like whenever the tempter tries to get us. He tries to get us by tempting us, but he uses stuff that's already in us. Have you ever looked at somebody who's really messing up and doing bad stuff and thinking, man, I'd never do anything stupid like that? I have. There are sins that some of you commit that I'm never tempted to, ever. And I think, how could you be so weak? And how could you be so dumb? And how could you be so wrong? But then I've got my own stuff. You know why some bait works for me and some doesn't? Because it's an inside job. And the devil knows things that affect us and he knows things that entice us and so he dangles and lures things around us all the time you see there's something within us that's drawn to do the wrong thing and the enemy attacks by luring us with our own desires now i'm not a great fisherman but i know this you don't catch many fish on a bear hook right well the enemy knows that as well. So he baits his hooks with the different things that tempt you. Maybe it's money for you. Money's never really been a tempting thing for me. I don't get it. It's kind of here today and gone tomorrow. You know, Taco Bell's as good as, you know, uh, Malone's to me. You know, I, I don't get it. You know, it just doesn't, if I got a place to live and roof over my head, fine with me. I never got money. But some of us are tempted by sexual. Some of us are tempted by popularity. Some of us are tempted by our, our, our ability to do things. Some are tempted by power. I think about society and I think, boy, our society has hooks everywhere. This weekend I was in Amish country in Indiana this weekend, Friday, uh, Thursday, Friday, with our team retreat at the KBC. Uh, one of my friends called it Amish. We were in the Amish country, <laughs> called it that the whole time. <laughs> and when I was there, I was thinking, man, isn't this nice? No temptation. Everything's just so simple. And usually I think that until I want air conditioner or TV or the ability to get down the road in about less than whatever. Uh, but, but it seems so simple, it seems so good. But here's why I bring them up. The Amish people, the Amish people believe if you're going to deal with temptation, what you do is you get away from all the temptations. Let me t let you in on a little secret. Because temptation's an inside job, it doesn't matter where you go or where you live. It doesn't matter who you're around or how much you're around them. Temptation's going to find you, and the devil knows what will hook you. And he will draw you and entice you with your own desires. Um, so what do you do? 
I mean, what do you do when you live in a society where hooks are everywhere? I mean, you can't turn around without finding whatever hook gets you, they're there. And they are attractively baited. Where do you, what do you do? How do you pull this off? Well, here's what you do. You focus on something better. You want to not take the bait that kills. You've got to find a bait that doesn't kill that's better, that's good for you. Now, you might say, I don't understand where you're going. Until you fall in love with God to the point that you think as God is better than your temptation. Until you get to the place where you think my relationship with that man, that woman, is better than that temptation around me, you're going to fail every time. Until you think that the one who hung on the cross is better than that temporary fix of appeal, you're going to fail every time. Until you think that Jesus is better, you'll lose. So what do you do? You've got to focus on him. I'm a distracted driver. I admit it. I can see deer in a field 350 yards away. I can tell if driving 80 mile an hour or 70 mile an hour. <laughs> I can see turkeys if they have a beard or not, if they're a tom or not. I can tell driving down the road. I can do it. I wave because I'm from a rural area. I wave at every person I see. When I'm driving down the road, my finger goes up on the steering wheel. Hey, how you doing? Hey, good to see you. You know, I mean, uh, that's the way I, right? I mean, you know, and my daughter, she hates it. It embarrasses her to no end because she's growing up in Lexington and you don't do those things in Lexington. They don't know you and they don't want to know you. <laughs> I, I'm just driving, hey, you know, in the neighborhood, I wave at people and they look at me like I'm weird or whatever, but I, all right, whatever. That's what I do. It really bothers my daughter because when I'm driving at night, I still wave. <laughs> I don't know. That's weird. I know. Anyhow, but it's what I do. But I want to tell you, there are times when I don't see the deer, I don't see the turkey, I don't see anything. When I am in downtown Cincinnati, or when I'm in downtown Nashville, or heaven forbid, driving through downtown Atlanta, I don't see anything going on around me. How come? Because I'm focused on staying alive. That's what I'm focused on. That's what you have to do if you want to beat temptation. You have to focus on that goal which is nobler than those things that distract. That is how you overcome. This is what is taught in Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight and that sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Okay, we're not going to sin. We're not going to get trapped. How do you do it? Well, listen to what he says next. Keep your eyes on Jesus who's the author, the finisher, the author, the the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, knowing that that relationship with us was worth him dying for. Keep your eyes on him. This is not an isolated instance. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Set your minds on what is above, not what is on the earth. And that's what the Scripture teaches. Focus on Jesus, not on the enticement. I want to focus on a word in verse 15 that says, Therefore, after desire conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, all of you have probably been taught your entire life a truth that sin means to literally... Anybody know what I'm about to say? Miss the mark. And it's like in bow and arrow, a person, you know throwing that arrow out there, and it falls short of a target. 
I get that that's the way we've learned it all our life. You know, you're shooting and, you're, and you know, instead of, you know, uh, Hunger Games, whatever, you are uh, the Mockingjay, you're like Elmer Fudd. You know, that's how you shoot your, your arrow and it falls short every time. Listen, that's, I understand that's good. We fall short of the glory of God, but here's a better way of understanding sin. It's not that I'm just not powerful enough to make it. It's that I'm aiming at the wrong target. You're missing the mark because the mark of the glory of God's over here and you're shooting at everything else out there instead of focusing on him. Now, uh, he uses some really graphic terms here and he uses the reproductive process. And listen to what he says. After desire has conceived, that process where the egg and the sperm come together, where temptation and your desire comes together, after it's conceived, after you give in to that moment, then listen to what happens. It gives birth to sin. Uh, sin starts to flower in your life, and, and then it does what sin always does. It gives birth to death. Do you all know what that image is? giving birth to death. We read that like, oh, that's just a phrase in the Bible. He's saying when you give in to sin, it is like an expecting couple having a stillborn child. It didn't get any tougher than that, guys. I've been there three times in 25 years of pastoring where I'm in the room. One was expected, which was awful. Two were not which is even worse because you pinned your hope and it's going to work out and now I've got this focus of my life and I've got meaning and I've got purpose and I've got joy and then all of a sudden this thing that was supposed to make you so great and make life make sense becomes the most devastating moment of your life. You, you hear what James is trying to say? You've got these enticements and when you allow them to take hold in your life They'll produce something, but it's not the expected result. It's not happier. It's not easier. It's not less complicated. It's not a new beginning. It's death and death and death and death. That's what sin does. It looks so good, but it ends in death. And giving in to temptation will always lead to disappointment. We trade everything for nothing. We leave loving God for a maybe. We leave giving him our heart and our love and our devotion for something that doesn't hold up. And it turns into disaster. Giving in to temptation is like a kid getting talked out of his money for a broken toy. Years ago when I was 13 years old, 1983, I was 13 years old. My parents, this is how the world has changed, used to take me and another boy who was 13 years old who lived about a half a mile away. They would take us almost every morning of a summer down to a park about five miles away and they'd drop us off there for most of the day. Had a water fountain and they'd throw us in usually a bologna sandwich type of deal. And they just, I guess, just wanted to get rid of us. And I kind of understand. But different world than it was. But they would take us down there. And there was tennis courts and basketball courts. And we could throw ball. And there was a creek that we'd play in down there. And I mean, kind of, you know, we usually try to hurt stuff in the process. And that's what 13-year-old boys do. Well, anyhow, we were out there. And we would play tennis. And we started playing tennis every day. Well, I'm a better athlete than John. I just am. I'm not meaning that. I was. He is now probably. But uh, I was a better athlete. And he beat him at everything we did. But when it came to tennis, he was beating me. I was thinking, how is this klutz beating me? And I noticed something. 
I had a wooden Jimmy Connors special missing two strings racket, and he had a shiny, a new metal racket when they first came out before graphite and whatever la 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 they've got now. And I thought, man, if I had his racket, I would beat him senseless. So after about three days, I asked him, I said, John, how much would you want for your racket? He said, how much you got? 1983, I thought 30 bucks was a good deal. That's a lot of money in 1983. It's all I had. I said, I'll give you 30 bucks for it. He said, sold. I sure enough beat him senseless for a couple days, and then he came out with a newer, shinier racket. I said, where'd you get that? He said, $10 at Kmart. But it, <laughs> true, true story. <laughs> that, that's how sin works. It looks so good. We want to give our all to it because it's going to deliver, and then all of a sudden we realize we've been duped. And that's what happens. Listen to what the next verse says. Don't be deceived. Don't be duped. You see, temptation is always about deception. You always buy a lie when you're tempted. And you give in. The reason people give in to temptation, and here it is, here's the message today. You're getting it in a nutshell. This sentence, people give in to temptation because it looks better to them than God. Teenage girl treats her purity because she's afraid to lose her boyfriend because her boyfriend looks better than God. Man trades time with his family for the bait of more accolades at work because the promotion seems better than God. The lady trades a healthy relationship with her husband for an internet romance because feeling young and wanted seems better than God. The high of the drug seems better than the comfort of God. Every sin boiled down to the simplest way of looking at it is that temptation looks better than God. Pretty simple, right? That's why he says don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, he's not just talking to ignorant people. He's not just talking to uh, not-in-church people, those people who are pagans all the time people. He's talking to who? Beloved brethren, loved brothers, believers. Y'all are going to call a pastor before long. that pastor is anything like me one of the hardest things I ever had to deal with was sitting in an office after I just counseled with somebody who had made a mess of their life couple broke up teenager messed up mom blew up dad didn't show up and here's what went down in my office find myself just grieving and asking myself, why didn't I say something? God, what could I have said that would have kept their marriage together? God, what could I have preached that would have held them together? God, what could I have done to help them see that you're better? What could I have done, God? And that's, yeah, I go there. I would go there all the time. Here's the truth. I'm not going to be here this time next year, guaranteed. 
but I would almost guarantee you some of you won't be either. Because something will get dangled in front of you that'll look better than God. Some of you won't make it till the end of the year. And it's not that you don't love God. It's just there's this strong pull within you. And, and, and some of you are there right now. You're getting sucked in by so many things. And some of you are nibbling on the bait. And you're, some of you are hook, line, and sinker. Don't be fooled. It's never going to work out for you. You're not going to be the first person in the history of this planet to chase after temptation and it go well. It always ends in deception and disappointment. Always. I hope you've heard the central theme of this message. The reason you should walk away from temptation is that God is better. He is better. It's not even a comparison. Listen to what James says next. The very next phrase, he says, Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above. And this might sound familiar. It comes down from the Father of lights. With him there is no shadow of turning or turning. He's faithful. His faithfulness is good. He's this good, loving husband. He'll always love you. He'll pour his life into you. He wants what's good for you. He wouldn't leave you for nothing. He, 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 when he says no, it's because he knows the direction you're heading is harmful. He loves you. It never changes. Don't be deceived. Nothing's better If God said no, teenage girl, teenage boy, it's not because God's evil and wanting to thumb you and say, I made them miserable until they were 25. It's because he loves you. Got the office, your family's doing well, and there's that allure of something bigger and brighter and shinier out there somewhere. Be careful. Make sure it's God. You might be right in the middle of where God wants you in your life. I can guarantee you if you are, the tempter is going to find some desire to dangle in front of you and say, look here. Be careful. Now, at this point in the Sermon on Temptation, I'm supposed to give you, you know, uh, a four-step program of of how to get through hard moments. You know, get away from the source, pray real hard, Call your sponsor. I want to tell you, these are Band-Aids. Band-Aids. You want to know what a permanent fix to overcoming temptation is? Get your mind around the fact that Jesus is better. Get your mind around the fact that what he did for you on the cross is better than anything you'll ever experience in this life. Get your mind around the fact that, you know that feeling when you do feel forgiven? Oh, it's so sweet. It's so good. The burden is lifted. You know that peace that passes understanding? You know that knowledge that God has got this and he is in control? You know that feeling that even if everything else is falling apart, it just seems like he's with you moment when you're following God? Wrap your brain around the fact that that really is better. It is. The truth is, if you try to stay away from some places and ignore urges, you will continue to lose. It might delay your losing, but you'll still lose. If you play that game of I'll do better next time, you'll be right back at the starting gate. Even if you have the best sponsor in the world, you'll figure out how to avoid them until you believe that the one who gave his life for you is better than that which you're selling out for. Until you believe that he is worth more and is more satisfying than the bait that looks good, you'll lose every time. The key to overcoming temptation is to believe that God really is better. That's the key. 
to really believe that God is better. Now, I can't convince you of that. But you're the preacher. You're supposed to. I can maybe keep you from falling asleep for 20 minutes. But I can't convince you that it's better. There's only one who can convince you that he is better, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. Who in that moment when you're all alone, and in that moment when you're in the quietness of your soul, and you're reflecting on what really is value and what is not, you become convinced that he who knew no sin, becoming sin for you, so that you might be right with God, is better than anything dangled in front of you. That's how you get there. You know why I can't convince you that he's better? Because I've taken the bait before too. In fact, we all have. We've all taken the bait. and We've all been hooked and waiting to be fried. But what Jesus did on the cross set me free. And it makes it possible for all to be free, even though you're guilty. You want to overcome temptation, you start thinking about the cross. In that moment when that temptation comes, wherever, alone at night, in a crowd, talking on the phone with a friend, in that moment, what I want you to do is, I, I, if you'll just try this one thing, would you set your temptation beside the cross in your mind. See, a lot of people think the cross is the starting point for the Christian life. I think it's the sustaining point. When I look, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, doesn't that demand my all? I hadn't found anything else, else that holds water. His gospel is beautiful. Do I really want to trade it for something that will bring me death? Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use this time. I ask God that you would use it for your glory. God, I pray that uh, I pray for your people here. God, I ask, Lord, more than anything, that you would help them to see how good you are through the cross, what you've done for them. And, Lord, when temptation comes their way, I pray that they would see, Lord, how good you have been to deliver them from sin. And, God, when they fall, and I pray, Father God, that they would still look to the cross that your mercy endures forever. Lord, I glorify you today. I praise you today, Father, that your mercy is infinite. Your goodness is eternal. Your forgiveness is available. And though we may stray, you are faithful. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. I pray in Jesus' name.